0: Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McCleese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics
1: for you. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese. And with me today is our very special guest, Dr. Frank Hamilton of Eckerd College. And we are so delighted to have him here today. Uh, Dr. Hamilton, please tell us a little bit about yourself, sir.
0: Okay, well, I have been at Eckerd College for 16 years. I am a tenured faculty member and I teach management. And since I'm at a small liberal arts college, uh, my PhD is in business administration, but liberal arts colleges sometimes may or may not have a business area. We have management. So what we're focused on is really management in the for-profit sector, the nonprofit sector, and the governmental sector, which fits with my history and background because, uh, you know, I did spend 22 years in the Army. That's the government at its finest. So, I certainly understand it from that perspective. And I've been in the nonprofit world for roughly, oh, I don't know, 30 years. So, you know, management is kind of management management. There are, you know, a variety of things. So, right. that's kind of our approach. And uh, I teach both the introductory courses and some upper level courses. So, it, it's a good, good fit for me. I enjoy it, uh, it's great fun. And um, it keeps me on my toes. I get to see the world through the eyes of an 18-year-old, which oh. is fascinating in itself.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I could <laughs> not agree more. And, and so, so you mentioned that, you know, you've got a, a great depth of experience in academics and as well as a career in, in the Army. Can you tell us, um, in your opinion, Frank, how, how, what do you see that veterans who are in academics, what, what's something that they're doing well right now?
0: Well, you know, I'm a little prejudiced because we're talking about me. But I I think that that one of the things that veterans of any level, be they officer or enlisted, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, They bring a bit of dedication to serve. So the guy who is the vice president of Eckerd right now who is handling our entire response to COVID is a former E-5 sergeant who was in the 82nd Airborne Division. All right, he brings all kinds of drive and ability to understand and solve problems to that position. That's why he got put there. And so when I look at the veterans that I see not only here, and we don't have a whole bunch of veterans here. I mean, I can count them and have fingers left over on my hands. Right. And one of them is getting ready to retire. His last day is Friday, uh, and he served in Vietnam. Okay. Uh, we used to have a Coast Guard reservist because we have a waterfront right? and yep, in the waterfront. Well, okay, so we, we come to the job, we meaning veterans, we come to the job with experience. Now, on the downside of that is a lot of veterans don't know how to translate their experience to the wonderful world of academics. And this is a very strange place. I mean, it's a, it's a big space. I'll agree. (laughs) (laughs) But it's very strange. Now I was fortunate enough, while I was in the army, I spent uh, two and a half years at Ohio State teaching ROTC. And then I was moved based on our ability, I would say our team's ability to recruit to headquarters TRADOC to the ROTC uh, area, the deputy chief of staff ROTC. And then for the next three years, I was on a traveling team teaching army officers and army NCOs how to actually recruit on college campuses. Oh, interesting. So it was fascinating for me to be, you know, we can we sometimes in the army, the military are, get so used to what we wear and how things work. So, you know, it's great. Yeah, I've got a name tag on so I can, you know, call you by your last name. I, I know what it is. I can look at you. I can know what you get paid. I mean, all that's there. Right. But, you know, I walk on a college campus and I don't necessarily understand it, uh, except that there's, you know, professors and there are instructors and they, we've got our own rank structure here. Right. And very similar but very different. And so, you know, the downside for a veteran is if they walk onto a college campus and don't take the time. To understand the t- the culture, that can be a real challenge. So, I I think over my years, both in the army and in civilian life, uh, I see that as a challenge for veterans just about anywhere, and that is being able to translate what we've done so that the folks here understand it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, you're so you're so right. I, You know across the board whether you talk to people in other professions or you see their posts on linkedin or or whatever the case is you're right it always comes down to whatever whatever sector they're in whatever their job market is is being able to translate that skill and like you mentioned earlier excuse me you know someone like yourself you've got great management experience and management is management is management um but Right. For, for many people, being able to take that and put it in a context somewhere else, like in this case, academics, uh, is one of those things that is still proving to be challenging.
0: It is. And, and you know, the military is, is its own subculture and it's a very strong culture. Absolutely. And so, you know, you get used to it. Of course, I was in the army for 22 years, so I really got used to it. Uh, but... When you come outside, there are cultures out here every bit as strong.
1: Absolutely.
0: Organizations in, in uh, communities, whatever the case may be. And we need to learn, we as veterans need to learn how to do that. And I, and I act as the kind of the point of contact at Eckerd because we don't have an ROTC program here, but we have a cross town agreement with the Air Force and the Army at the University of South Florida. Okay. And why? Because I'm a translator if nothing else. Right. The provost says to me, what about this? Then I kind of talk to her in academic speak, or the the professor of military science over at the army says, and what about this? Then I translate it going the other way. And so I kind of understand, you know, I kind of stand in the middle ground here. And I'm not patting me on the back by any sense of what I'm thinking about, but rather just Somebody needs to be able to do that uh, because you know the uh, the these young hard chargers come in and they are they are all army all the time or all air force all the time whatever the case may be. Don't even get me started on the navy because there is a navy detachment there too. Uh, and then they come on campus and they don't know how to talk to people. Right. And you know I I feel that. You know the, the the cadets that we turn out here, the liberal arts cadets, are exactly what the military needs for officers. Somebody who can who are well rounded, right, can drop into any situation. Uh, so you know I'm very pro our guys going going on on to military service, and we commissioned two lieutenants for us. That's a lot uh, just in June. And we did it all socially distanced and over Zoom. I'd never been to a Zoom commissioning before. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, they they bring value to that because of their well-rounded education. So I think there are a lot of things that veterans have to offer. And it's stuff most of the time we take for granted. And we learn how to do things in the military that people don't tend to think about that they learned. Very true, very, very and true. Just, and we certainly get to play with some very expensive toys, uh, courtesy of the United States military. And, and how do you translate that? How do you, how do you bring that alive? Not that I think is, I mean, you know, I, I perhaps sound a little harp-harp here, but I've seen it too many times in, 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 since I was uh, you know, teaching in ROTC at Ohio State. Uh, and And it's just it 's something that we 've got to learn
1: right right you're right it's a complete community thing uh, and a complete community need that while we 're improving there's still so much so much room for improvement uh, we've got a long way to go
0: right so, right right
1: right you know with with your experience, so it sounds like you've had experience you know uh you've had higher ed woven into your military career and you've had high level in, in management, uh, can you tell us some about, about your, what, what was your drive to, to join the military, and then when you were in the military, what did you do? What was your time like?
0: <clears throat> you know, a thousand years ago, when I was teaching ROTC at Ohio State, uh, the five officers that were part of the cadre, w- we went in to speak to the seniors, and they had a burning question. Why did you join the military? Now this is in 1980, 1978, 1980 timeframe. All five of us from the colonel on down said exactly the same thing. We went in the army to avoid the draft. Uh, uh, Because in 1965, when I went away to college, uh, my draft board was taking anybody. And it was my thought that, you know, if I'm going to go into the service, I ought to go in as an officer. Well, in order to be an officer, I had to go through ROTC. And my original plan back then was, okay, I'd go into the Army, I'd do my time, and I'd get out and I'd teach high school. That was my original plan. And uh, when I became a senior in, in ROTC, I ran across by accident – a bomb disposal officer. Okay, and he lived in my apartment complex when I was at college. Oh wow! And I was just like, I want to be like that guy, <laughs> uh, because I mean, he just—I I looked like the Life of Riley, and, and I got to know him, and it just sounded like a good deal. And he would—he had an R—an uh, EOD detachment, a bomb disposal detachment that was located in Central Ohio at an ammunition depot. And so I told, when I went on active duty, I said, okay, I want two things. I want to go to Germany, and I want bomb disposal. And, you know, the Army being the Army said, you can choose one. And I said, okay, I want to go bomb disposal. They said, all right, that's fine. We'll do that. And I went off to bomb disposal school, and, um, yeah, it's probably the hardest school I've ever gone to in my life. Uh, We started with 34 and graduated four. Uh, so that was the difficulty. Wow. Wow. But again, about halfway through it, when they, when the army realized I was probably going to make it, they called me on the phone again and they said, okay, you can't go to Vietnam because lieutenants in your specialty die. So we're going to send you to Germany. Is that okay? And of course I was kind of like, really? Okay. <laughs> you know, break my heart. Send me to Germany right. to be a bomb disposal officer. And I was. Uh, I was a bomb disposal officer from 71 to 75, and it was great fun. Uh, you never knew what you are going to do when you woke up in the morning. And I had uh, 15 enlisted, and my boss was 45 miles away. So, you know, what, what's not to like? Uh, right. I had some highly intelligent NCOs who, who took this young, dumb lieutenant and kind of trained him, and they did a great job. Uh, I think they did, and and uh, so it came time, and it was, okay, what do you want to do now? Because I had originally said, I'm going to get out now, right? And, 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 but I'd had fun, and so I said, you know, I ought to try this for another tour and just see. Unfortunately for me, a lot of guys like me that were bomb disposal Lobsters, at that time, you were kind of at a dead end as a captain. And so I knew ammunition, so they said, all right, we're going to send you to command a conventional ordnance company. There's a, That's a world of difference. Right, right. It's a world of difference. And so I went to Georgia, Fort Stewart, and took command of a conventional ammunition company and commanded for 30 months. So now I've got mm, almost eight years of command time right off the bat. Right. Okay, and I go to the career course, and what's the career course gonna teach me? It's gonna teach me how to command a company. Been there, done that already. Uh, But coming out of the career course, I had an opportunity. The branch again called me on the phone and said, okay, looks like you got your master's degree, and I got my master's degree while I was in Germany. And so we need an army officer to go to Ohio State University and teach ROTC. Would you like to do that? And again, I held the phone away from my, hair, my ear and went, "You really? You're asking me that?" Uh, and so send me in, coach. And off I went to Ohio State, which was great fun. Again, uh, you, know, teaching, teaching students in learning about higher education learning, learning how, how higher education works. Okay. Kind of said as an undergraduate way back then, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to get a PhD and, and teach college and maybe I'll do that someday.
1: Right. Okay. Good.
0: Right in the back of my mind. Right. And, and so, you know, I did the ROTC thing. I did the, the, the Des ROTC, which then got me to a high level staff job. So the first time I'd starting to look around, and now from, from, from this point on, I'm always working for general officers. Okay. One way or the other. Interesting. And, uh, so I did the ROTC thing and they said, okay, it's time for you to have a short tour. How'd you like to go to Turkey and command a company? Now I'm a major. Right. So I got now, now it's the third command. And so I go I go to uh, Turkey and I command a special weapons company, which is, again, a very interesting thing in the ammunition business. And after that, I went back to Germany and uh, ended up on a brigade staff. And a new general came in and the new general came in and the first thing he did was look at everybody who was doing a 15-6. And we all had to go in and brief him. And so I went in and I I got done and and he said, you seem to understand this stuff because what I was doing was a 15 six on the rod and gun club because they weren't doing a real good job with their inventory. Not that stuff was walking out the door. It was stupidity, but nevertheless, rod and gun clubs have, you know, ammunition and all kinds of things. And, and I said, well, thank you, sir. You know, I just read the books. He said, how'd you like to run all the clubs for me? And again, I looked at him and I'm, I'm going, what? Uh, and I come to find out the, the club system in that particular area ha- was about $750,000 in debt. Oh, wow. He had come in with, and I saw, I saw the note on three-star letterhead to the one-star. And it was real simple. Fix the clubs. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen such a brief note in my entire right. life. And, and so, you know, I ended up running the club system for a year. So that was my first introduction to business. I mean, yeah, I've been on the receiving end. I'd done the waiter and waitress thing when I was in college and, and, and that kind of stuff. But I'd never, I'd never done business. And, and so this was my, my introduction to business. And I made a deal with the general. I said, I only want to be there for a year. And then I want to go back to the army. Okay. And he said, "Okay, it's a deal." Well, we got him out of debt, and I had five clubs. I had two hundred employees when I started. I fired most of them the first day because we didn't have the money to pay them. Gotcha. Okay. So it was it was a very tough year, but at eleven months in, when I'd gotten the clubs back in the black, I went to see see the boss, and I said, "Okay." Uh, where you know where are you going to put me in a month? And he said, "I want you to stay on." And I looked at him. I said, "That wasn't our deal." Right, right. He said, "You're right. It wasn't." Okay. And he he lived up to the deal. Oh, good. And uh, you know, let me go back to doing what I had been doing before. I was on a road uh, a, an inspection team, a brigade wide inspection team. And this was an out eight thousand person brigade, and we were scattered in Belgium, in in Holland all over Germany, and so was, you know, again, I went back on road trips again doing in, in, uh, inspections, and before he left, he gave me the materiel officer job in a battalion, and that was my step that I needed to take. I mean, for the combat arms, you gotta be a three or an XO, but preferably the three. You know, in an ordnance battalion, it is the materiel officer because they're the ones that run the operation. Okay. And um, it was the largest battalion in the Army. There were 1,600 people in it. And uh, I was there for a year, and then I got picked to go to the Pentagon. and in uh Secretary of the Army's office in ammunition.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: So now I've gone to corporate headquarters, you know, me and 1,000 right. of my closest friends. And I was there, and I popped on the battalion command list and went right back and commanded that battalion. And that battalion was a theater support battalion for chemical weapons and nuclear weapons. So I had all kinds of interesting people working for me. Oh, wow. Very interesting. And so while I was in command of that battalion, we removed all the chemical weapons from Europe. That was Uh, depot. So yeah, uh, that, that'll keep you off the streets at night. And, and, um, so we did that, and my battalion was picked because of the Berlin Wall falling. Now we're into 1991 time frame. As the first battalion in Europe to stand down under, you know, we, you know, we won the war kind of thing. Right. And, and so my battalion was, was the first, and then there was a, uh, an air defense battalion that was right behind us by a day. So we were the first two in Europe. Oh, wow. And so I learned how to take apart a battalion. Which was fascinating. I had never downsized anything before, and and so again now, by the time that I got done with my battalion, the general I'd worked for earlier in the clubs was long gone. In fact, he ended up as a three star. Uh, there's a new general there, and he goes, "Okay, Frank, you you know you've done great job downsizing your battalion, and uh, how'd you like to do the whole brigade?" And wow. That's what we did. I went in March of 91. I went to the brigade headquarters, started a new office, a force integration office, and in, my job in life was to get rid of everything the brigade had. And over the next 15 months, we got rid of it all. We turned the land back, we turned over the trucks, we turned over the weapons, we uh, transferred soldiers all over the place. Uh, a lot of them went, you know, to uh, Iraq. Okay. Storm.
1: Right. And they went that
0: way and then just never came back. Uh, and in October 1992, I locked the door as the last guy out. Oh, wow. And... I had decided while I was downsizing that battalion or the brigade, and it was it was probably the most heartbreaking thing I've ever done in my life. Because I had worked for this brigade on two separate occasions, and you know, you feel a great love for the organization you're in. Absolutely, right. And now you're in charge of taking it apart. Right. And, and basically closing it. And so I had decided I was gonna retire. I was just very frustrated with the army. Not that I didn't like the army. It was just, this was not, this was not a fun job. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I got to see this place that I loved dearly and the organizations that were in it, right? Uh, just go away. And my the boss then put me into the clubs. I saw when I was back one time in the in the Pentagon going back and forth. That I, I was doing a lot of flying at that time as we were downsizing stuff, going back and forth to the Pentagon. And I saw him in the Pentagon. And by that time, he'd retired. And he was the CEO of a Beltway Bandit. And I had a great deal of respect for him. And he said, Frank, I want you to come work for me. And I looked at him and I smiled and I said, uh-uh. <laughs> okay. No, I, I, I said – I said, sir, I, I respect you. I would work for you in a heartbeat because you're good at what you do. But I don't want anything to do with the military. Okay. I, I want to go away from the military completely. And I know a lot of people get out of the military and so, you know, they automatically become beltway bandits or, you know, they're they're providing services or whatever the case may be. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that at, at that point in my life, I wanted nothing to do with it. Right. I it to be completely separate. And, and so I just, when I got out of the army, I said, all right, where do I wanna go? I can go anywhere, you know, cause I'm living in Germany, where do I wanna go? Well, first I took six weeks of vacation and drove around Europe. Oh, very good. Yeah, which is kind of fascinating cause I had, I had decided I was gonna move to Florida. And so, I, and so of course, when I got out of the military, I got rid of the USA tag and replaced it with a Florida tag. There okay. The guards at the Czechoslovakian border, fascinated me. <laughs> they had no idea what to make of that Florida tag. <laughs> but I drove around and you know shipped the car back and I came to Tampa, Florida. And when I came to Tampa, Florida, in the back of my mind, one of the reasons I came to Tampa was it had a university and it had PhD programs. Okay. It it, but it was in the back of my mind because I came back and I had to get a job. So what do I want to do? Yeah, I'm retired and I'm what 45 or so. But uh, you know, yeah, you can only you can only do so much work in your garden. And you go nuts. Uh, right. So you know, I got a job. I worked for Dale Carnegie for a couple of years, which was fascinating. Uh, in the training business, which kind of you know, army people do that very well. We know right. how to do people. And, uh, but I, I met some people, got to, got to know some people. And this is when I lived in Sefner. So I met some guys and we formed a company and we started a company and I've never started a company before, but I ended up being the managing partner. Okay. And it was a professional employer organization. And basically what they do is they do HR for small business. And back in 1992, 93, 94 timeframe, that was a real niche market. Right. I'm kind of learning on my own here. You know, you got to get into these niche markets. And I'd already been selling throughout Pinellas County and Hillsborough County, Dale Carnegie stuff. So I understood the marketing and sales piece of this. And so we got an offer we couldn't refuse from a much bigger company. So here I am in 1996 and I'm I'm you know we've we we sold the company now what do you want to do? Well when you sell something like that you get you know there's some the money. Right right. And so I said you know what my GI bill is going to run out here.
1: Okay.
0: And the GI bill only had a 10 a 10 year window.
1: Right. This was the Montgomery and Yeah. Montgomery GI bill right.
0: Yeah and and so I I said, all right, I want to get a PhD in history. Because when I was at Ohio State, what I was doing for the Army was teaching military history. And I fell in love with it. You know, Ohio State has a a military history doctorate program, which feeds all the military departments, which is fascinating. Uh, And and so I actually went to classes while I was at Ohio State. So I'm like, okay, I'll get a history degree and I'll specialize in military history right here at the University of, of South Florida. Yeah, well, um, I should have really paid closer attention because they didn't have a doctorate in history. Uh. And it's like, all right, now what are you going to do? And so I had gotten to know a variety of people throughout Tampa because of my sales. And one of the people I knew was the director of the leadership center at the University of Tampa. And he had a PhD from Northwestern. And his PhD was in business. Okay. And so I went into him and I kind of like, now what do I do? <laughs> okay. What do you, why do you want to get a PhD? I mean, and I, I th- that's a valuable question.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Anybody
0: I talk to that tells me they're thinking about a PhD is why. And then exactly. there's conversation about it. And he had a very serious conversation with me about it. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I really want to do military history. He said, okay, we've decided that can't work unless you move. Right. Uh, And uh, so, why? And I said, I'm fascinated with leadership. he goes, that's different. That's not military history. That's everything. Um, Go to the University of South Florida and see if they got a leadership program. Now he knew they did.
1: Right. Yeah,
0: but he wanted me to find out.
1: Okay, good.
0: And so I went to the University of South Florida and there was a professor of marketing teaching leadership as a track in the MBA program. And so I went in and introduced myself and talked to him and he sent me to see another guy and all of a sudden I am taking courses at the University of South Florida to get a doctorate. Now, Another piece of advice I had from another PhD was you're going to be an old guy by the time you start your doctoral program. And, and yeah, I I was 50 years old when I started my PhD program. Find a school that will let you do what you want to do.
1: Right. Okay. Very good advice.
0: And um, I did. So I always, my, my doctorate is in business administration but my cognate areas were industrial organizational psychology and communications. So if you're looking at the leadership literature, that's where it sits. It sits in business, it sits in psychology, especially IO psychology, and it sits in communications. Those are the three academic disciplines that you find leadership scholarship. And uh, so what I realized as I'm going through this doctoral program is that the army had done a wonderful job teaching me how to lead an outstanding job. Of course I had, you know, a couple of shots at command. So, and I got a chance to work at a higher headquarters a couple of times so I could watch leaders in action. So I had learned how to do it pretty good. Uh, nobody had ever taught me why we were doing it.
1: Gotcha. Right. Right.
0: Why are we doing what we're doing? And that's what my doctoral program taught me.
1: Ah, oh, fascinating. Okay.
0: I learned the why. And, and so when I started my dissertation, uh, you know, of course, they're saying to me, what do you want to do? Now, I had started this doctoral program because I just wanted to get a doctorate. But, you know, I'm 57, 58 years old now. What do you want to do with this doctorate do you want to go out and consult you certainly can uh you know because the phd gives you credibility uh but again i started talking to people one of the things that we do in the military very well is we learn how to talk and find mentors right smart at it yeah exactly again it doesn't make any difference whether you're an officer enlisted you find them and I found a couple of mentors and they said, you know, you really love to teach. That's what you ought to do. And I went, okay, that makes sense. And now going, you know, full circle back to when I graduated as an undergraduate saying, I'm going to go teach history someplace. So I'm teaching, but I'm teaching something different. And and so there's a, there's a you know, a 30-year arc there someplace. But uh, so... What did I want to teach? I couldn't teach at the University of South Florida because most PhD granting programs don't take their own. They want right. you to go out and do something someplace else. So when I went on the market, Eckerd was open along with two other schools in 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 the greater area, and I'm I'm living in Odessa at this time, and so and I had been teaching at USF Lakeland. Okay. Uh, so, so I've been teaching every management course that USF offered. I had offered it one time or another at USF Lakeland. So I had lots of teaching experience. So, but I've walked on this campus and I fell in love. Awesome. I mean, I fell in love. I was, I was like, this is home. I like oh, it. It's beautiful. I like, I like how they think, uh, I like what they do. Uh, we have a very active international program here so since I've been here, I've been to Europe. I've been to London in particular uh, nine times, uh, taking students. Uh, I, and, and, and that's another thing that military people can do very well. We know how to live overseas. Now, I'm not talking about the sandbox, because that's not where you take students. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, understand, we understand foreign travel. We, we right. can do that. And Eckerd has a residence hall in London break my heart. (laughs) You know, I've been there. I've taken students there. And so, you know, uh, there was not what not to like about this. So I fell into a good opportunity again. And so I had no idea how I'm going to last here. Uh, My goal, because the school has said, okay, you're going to go back to London in fall of twenty twenty two for a semester. Oh wow. Oh okay, I can do this right. Send me in coach. <laughs> and uh, so right now I have said, okay uh, fall twenty twenty two I'm on a year to year contract as a tenured faculty member. okay, so let's see how we feel in march twenty twenty three about, you know, and then we'll just go from year to year to year. But as long as I have my health, okay, I can live with this. Right. A liberal arts college is fundamentally different than most uh, state schools. Because, yeah, I teach more, but I have my summers off. And because we're a liberal, a little liberal arts college, we have what's known as a winter term in January. Uh-huh. And that's travel term. So I keep getting to go to London. On, on these trips. I mean, if it wasn't for COVID, uh, I'd be in London for Christmas this year. Right. So, you know, I just kind of fell into this. And this morning, we, I was teaching uh, organizational culture in class, and I compare and contrast Eckerd culture, college culture, with the military. And I told them that, I, you know, this afternoon I'm gonna be doing a podcast with another military person aimed at a military audience. I'm gonna slip back into the military language. And I did.
1: Right, right, absolutely right.
0: Yeah, I, and, and, and you know, can you move back and forth between the military language and the college language? Back, back to what I said about being on campus. I remember going to a party after I got out of the army and I ran into a guy who was a field artillery guy who had been assigned to this brigade I was in because we had uh, five field artillery groups in, in this ordnance brigade because of what we did. And he and I were getting along like thieves in the corner, uh-huh. speaking that funny language. <laughs> right, right. And all the civilians around us are just, you know, kind of walk tiptoeing around us. And, and so you got to be able to do that. And, and I pointed out to the students that when they go home at Christmas time, they're going to see their friends, and they're already immersed in the Eckerd language. And they're going to say something like a winter term to one of their friends that goes to a state school, and that, that person's going to look at them like, uh, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Right. So, you know, we have, this, we have this ability to shift cultures and shift languages. So that's me. Okay, I, you know, I can talk about me for a very long time, needless to say. Uh, but that, I mean, I, every experience that I've had has opened a door one way or another for another experience.
1: Well, let me ask you this, Frank, and you've, you've kind of talked about it, but, but not in a direct manner thus far. When it comes to your complete experience, your experience in the military and then transitioning as your veteran experience, how have these experience informed your approach and what you're doing to ac- in academics?
0: Oh, quite a bit. Uh, it, it's fascinating to me because, I, as I mentioned earlier, that the management discipline at the University of South Florida had me teaching uh, undergraduate classes almost immediately. And what it had to do with was my experience as a budget analyst at the Pentagon right. very high level and people don't look at the Pentagon like it's corporate, but it's corporate headquarters. I had corporate headquarters experience and I was dealing with money, lots of money, lots of zeros after those, uh, after the money that I, that I was playing with. Indeed. And, and so, you know, my experience as a, a military officer almost constantly informs what I do uh, you know, the, the experience, like I said earlier about, you know, not ever being in business. And then all of a sudden I was, you know, up to my nose in business, right. right. Uh, in, in the financial side of it and how do organizations work when you're taking apart an organization, you learn how organizations really work. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, you forget the small things. I remember they came to me one day early on when we were getting rid of the battalion. And they said, okay, we need to get rid of, you know, we can get rid of this guy, this position. Right. And, and they said that we got a really good place for him to go, and it's, it's a done deal. And I went, okay. I didn't question it because, you know, the staff came to me and said that. We got rid of the mail clerk. <laughs> Oh, oh, incredibly stupid. Oh,
1: my goodness. You
0: know, so, so you learn that at the end of the day, and, and we're learning it right now in this pandemic, the important people are the service people. Right, exactly. And, you know, the frontline folks, you know, because I'm in Florida, you know, I can talk about Publix a little bit, but the guys in Publix, the men and women in Publix, who are stocking the shelves and keeping the vegetables fresh and trying to figure out what happened to all the toilet paper? Those are <laughs> people.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You know?
0: And and so you know that that experience informs me to this day. What are we doing about Frontline? So so I am the president of a nonprofit right now that I co-founded back when I had nothing better to do in graduate school, uh, but. I'm always worried about the frontline guys, the frontline men and women, because if they're not trained and they're not ready and they're not connecting with the the customer, we have a problem. I learned that in the Army. Right. Uh, you know, we didn't use the word customer. Well, we did when I was in the clubs, but when I was an ammunition officer, we had customers. They were called infantry.
1: Yeah. right, right. Right. <laughs>
0: And, and, uh, you know, when I worked in the brigade, our customers were the field artillery and the air defense artillery. So, we always had customers. And And the Army taught me that you always look forward. You know, support is always forward. Right. I was supposed to be. It's no different out here. Yeah, it's not necessarily forward, but it's certainly out there. Right. So... Yeah, I've, I, you know, after you and I talked the first time, I started thinking about how everything I think I do, one way or the other, is informed by my military experience. Uh, you know, it may not be direct one-on-one, but you know, if I think about it for a minute, if I reflect on it, it certainly is the the style of leadership I believe in is something called servant leadership. I, I ran into it in graduate school. Well, wait a minute. That's what the army taught me. Right. <laughs> right. They didn't call it that, but that's what they taught me. They taught me that, you know, you, the army said, you take care of your people.
1: Right. True. That's your job, you fair. eat last. That's right. There's that's a
0: wonderful fair. book out by that name, you eat last. But that's what I learned. And then all of a sudden I find out there here's a leadership theory out there that fits that. And there are corporations that have that theory. Right. So I was lucky I did my dissertation on a bank that had that theory. So so again, you know, what I learned in the army, I'm reading about and I'm going, yeah, this exists in the civilian world.
1: Yeah. yeah. Isn't it so amazing? It, it's, it's so amazing how many, how much influence there is in, in systems, policies, procedures, uh, how well that translates to civilian life, how, how inefficient it is sometimes and efficient in the other. It, it, it It's all interesting how it takes shape with different people in different contexts, you know, but, but you're right for all of us. And I'm saying this and you might uh, appreciate this with, one of your areas of scholarship but i really look at this from a constructivist standpoint and you know i think in those ways that we've that has been part of our learning schematics so that's something we're going to build all of our information on uh, forever and ever so you're right i'm glad that you pointed that out because uh, you know so many times guests say well i do this and this and this but it's really there's like you mentioned it's it's so much broader. There's really a, at least a fabric of our experience, informing this this greater life experience now forever.
0: Right, right. And and no, I'm a very I, I my approach is very constructivist. Uh, in fact, you know, I use those guys, I, and, and in a number of academic papers that I that I've actually published over the years because. There are really three things you worry about in leadership. One is obviously the leader. Two is the follower, and the third is the context. Well, Uncle taught me context very early on, in, and if you look at at, at you know uh, the five paragraph field order, context is right in there. Yeah, uh, right. and, <laughs> and and but that that context is socially constructed. Right. It's not just an objective way of doing things so yeah we have to be thinking that way and we're taught to think that way in the military and sometimes we forget that it carries over and you know i'm kind of i i i i look at myself as, as, as a, a leadership scholar a grassroots organization type scholar because i'm fascinated with that kind of stuff right but recently, like within the last 15 years, I've gotten into companion animal policy, which really kind of sounds strange. But I'm running a, i I'm president of a nonprofit veterinary clinic. Right. Right. And, and so, again, like anything else, I mean, military people tend to be quick studies. We know how to adapt in situations. That's, what's, that's what we're supposed to be able to do. That's what uncle teaches us. Exactly, right. And, 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 you know, I got a crash course in that as a bomb disposal officer, but it really didn't change uh, when I was when I had my companies or when I had my battalion. Uh, you know, you were still thrust into a situation, and we had an adaptive challenge, and we had to figure it out. And it wasn't always me figuring it out. Usually it was the spec for the PFC on the ground figuring out, and telling me, okay, you know, this is how we need to do this, uh, you know, or I think this is. Uh, so, you know, that 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 says you gotta have a certain kind of ability to have uh, a communications flow from the lowest to the highest.
1: Absolutely, right. You know,
0: and, and all organizations have that problem.
1: <laughs> That's true all, too, Yeah,
0: They all have that challenge. Uh, and, and so it, it, to me, it's just, I mean, the world is kind of a fascinating place to go out and watch and, and try and figure out how things are done. Uh, the piece that I was just talking about, about the, the triad of, uh, leader followers context, I was at a conference last year in the UK and there was a British colonel sitting in the room who was getting his doctorate and he, he questioned me on it. And I did, I looked at him very puzzled. And I said, come on now, I've worked with the British Army. You guys are very interested in context. And, and so we have this discussion because it's so subtle sometimes that we don't pay attention to it.
1: Right, right, exactly, exactly. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, Frank, can you tell us, cause we're getting close to time and I wanna be respectful of your time. Can, can you tell us about any projects that you've got going on now or anything you're going to have in the future?
0: Well, as I said, in, in the past couple of years, I've really focused on companion animal policy. So I'm currently working on a project right now to figure out uh, spay-neuter across the country, what's publicly funded. Uh, my time with the Army informed me how budgets work. And, uh, I'm very, very more than I want to be familiar with something called OPM, which is other people's money, <laughs> right? And, and, and that's tax dollars. And I've worked with, i worked with both appropriated and in the club system, not appropriated and appropriated. You get, you know, those, those things can only be used certain ways. So that's federal dollars, but there's also state dollars and local dollars, but all the budgets tend to work the same. So I've been working in that area for the last couple of years, and I'm doing research right now uh, in it to find out what kind of public dollars are being spent. But at the same time, I also have a leadership piece uh, on uh, long range leadership development of college students because one of the things I didn't talk about was while I was at the University of South Florida, uh, I was the faculty advisor to something called the Leadership House, which was an undergraduate re- co-ed residence hall of 38 students. And I advised it for uh, the whole time I was at USF, which was six and a half years. And I'm still in contact with those students today. And so it's been fascinating to me to watch them grow and develop uh, in, and the lessons that they learned in this program, so I've always had a paper on the back burner, but I'm now at the, at the stage where, okay, we're going to bring this thing back out, and it was a house that was, that, that was founded on servant leader principles, okay. which I wasn't in charge, they were, and my job was to create the container for them to be able to experiment in safely, that was my job. So I kind of, I told them that, okay, here's the deal. I will stop you in one of three circumstances. If you're going to do something illegal, if you're going to embarrass the university, or I think you're going to kill somebody, which is kind of illegal, but one step worse. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, you guys do what you want to because failure is part of leadership. Absolutely. Failure is a part of learning. And, and you know, that they are, they are now throughout the country in doing all kinds of interesting things. Now, oh, very cool. And I, you know, I presented that a paper on that, uh, twice, once in Australia, actually, uh, you do get to travel in this job. That's nice. That's why I like the army, uh, cause I got to travel. And, and so that's kind of what I'm working on. I'm, I'm working on both in the, leaderships, the leadership development space and in the companion animal space. Very okay. fascinating. That's where my research is.
1: Very fascinating. And you know, if you were just to tell me that and I haven't heard your story, I, I would not be able to draw, me being an outsider would not be able to draw the connection, but now after... Uh, hearing all of your experiences and and your interests. it's Now it's so clear, that that connection that's there. And that's really, really fascinating. Really fascinating. Well, Dr. Frank Hamilton, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the show and, and sharing your story with all of our listeners.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. McLeish, for letting me talk about me okay, break my heart, let me talk about me, Uh, uh, but to to kind of relive, you know, my life, okay, you know, this is your life kind of thing, where at that time of the year, we can watch Jimmy Stewart and One Little Angel, but, you know, where you reflect on your past and and where it's led you, and, you know, if I can help anybody at any time, this is a very individualized journey, but it's not an individualized journey, because they're doing the same thing. Exactly. Uh, you know, so, you know, people want to, want to reach out and touch. I'm sure that you will have figured out one way or another that somebody can contact me. And, um, you know, that'll be fine.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'd like to tell all the listeners that, um, when we post this show, we will also include some links to uh, Dr. Hamilton's work and, uh, anything that he wants to share with us in the fewer, or in the future, We'll keep everyone abreast of everything that you're doing, Frank. Thank you so much.
0: Hey, you're welcome.
1: All right. Thanks again, everyone. This has been another episode of Veterans and Academics. Thanks for listening.
0: We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.